The Numinous Podcast with Carmen Spaniola. Hi there, and welcome to the Numinous Podcast, where we have interesting conversations with everyday folks about the mystery of life. This podcast is a complement to the Numinous School, my online intuition development course, and it's produced with the support and encouragement of my patrons, listeners who enjoy the show and let me know with a financial high five. If you'd like to become a patron of the show, I'll let you know how at the end of the episode. This week, I'm honored to be speaking with Nicole Foss, an international energy and finance analyst and co-founder of the website The Automatic Earth, where she writes under the nom de plume, Stonely. The Automatic Earth integrates really complex issues of energy, finance, environment, psychology, population, and international politics, so we can better understand why we find ourselves in this global state of crisis and what we can do about it. Nicole previously was editor of The Oil Drum Canada, where she wrote on peak oil and finance. And for all of you who are currently zoning out and thinking, what else can I listen to because I'm just not interested in heady things like finance, I'm, I used to be like you. I used to not be that interested until I went to a talk and heard Stonely speak. And she was so lucid and she's so clearly a polymath. In other words, she's a genius in a significant number of different areas and knows how to solve problems that I was absolutely captivated by her and have been watching her and following her work for years. And she is who I turn to to educate myself about finance, about global politics and about what that means for me in terms of investment and what I should be doing with my money in times of crisis and leading up to them and preparing for them. So please give yourself this half hour to consider an alternate approach to finance. I connected with Nicole over Skype. She was at home near Wellington, New Zealand. So Nicole, I'm so excited to have you here on the show, but I want to contextualize uh, of the conversation we're about to have by just letting the listeners know that on your blog, theautomaticearth.com, you have uh, in the navigation a tab for primers. And you, we're going to be touching on a lot of very complex topics in this conversation, but your primers have been absolutely foundational for myself and my husband, Ruben, as we create what we call the small and delicious life, a life that other people might consider kind of back to the lander or urban homesteader. Uh, we're, of course, very interested in how to respond to climate change, but your focus has been on what what we sort of jokingly call the econopocalypse, talking about the financial <laughs> collapse that seems to us anyway will preclude or or at least become a more pressing and urgent issue um, even as we're also coping with climate change. So I want to focus on one of your primers, which is called 40 Ways to Lose Your Future. Now, as we enter into this terrain, I wonder if you could enlighten us <laughs> and explain what exactly is deflation? Uh, and I, you, you mention it a lot on your site, and, and I know that it relates to credit bubbles and housing <laughs> market collapse. Could you give the listeners uh, and myself just a refresher on what deflation actually is and why we should be concerned? 
Certainly. We've lived through 30 years of credit expansion. So this has been highly inflationary. Inflation is an increase in the supply of money uh, in relation to goods and services. We've had a long period of economic expansion and credit expansion particularly. Credit is, is what has fueled it. What that's done is created uh, excess claims to underlying real wealth because credit represents claims to underlying collateral that cannot actually be be paid. So we have we have a crisis of under collateralization that's developed over the last 30 years where we made more and more and more claims to the same underlying amount of wealth. So we think we've created a huge amount of wealth. What we've actually done is created a lot of virtual wealth. And most people don't realize that there are actually multiple claims to every single thing that's actually worth anything in the entire world. As long as we don't realize that there are more claims than there is collateral to go around to back them up, then the world keeps ticking uh, the way it has done. As soon as people realize that there are more claims than there is stuff to back them up, then what ends up happening is there's a giant free-for-all as people grab for their share of the underlying real wealth pie. Now, deflation is a decrease, or in this case, a collapse, in the supply of money plus credit relative to available goods and services. It happens because 99% approximately of the money supply is credit, as we've developed this huge mountain of IOUs over the last 30 years. Now, the vast majority of what we consider to be money is actually a pile of, of IOUs, promises to be repaid. And promises only have value as long as the promise to repay is credible. As soon as people wake up to the fact that there are more promises that can possibly be kept by a vast degree, then the game is going to be over for the value of those promises. So what we're looking at is a money supply collapse because we're about to realize that we've made far, far more promises than can possibly be kept. The value of promises depends on people's belief in the, the likelihood that those promises will be kept. So when people wake up to the fact that it's not possible to keep the vast majority of those financial promises, their value goes to zero. We will have crashed the money supply and 99% or more of the supply of money is actually credit. So we'll have crashed the money supply. There will then be very little money to go around. So by definition, is the, the collapse of the money supply relative to available goods and services. So we're going to be surrounded by uh, the potential for goods and services and cheap labor and uh, what resources remain, which is still a reasonable amount of resources, but we won't be able to do anything with them. Like the 1930s when they said we had everything except money. The crash of the financial system, which is the global operating system, created at that time and is about to create again a situation of artificial scarcity where you're surrounded by everything you had before but because of the lack of money because of the crashed operating system you can't do anything with it and this leads you directly into a period of economic depression and that's what we stand on the verge of today okay so what happens if nobody ever realizes <laughs> you know they always do eventually so what happens 
you have endogenous limits for credit expansion. It's not that they can continue forever and no one will ever notice. As you create an enormous pile of credit, the flip side of that, of course, is you create an enormous pile of debt. And eventually you get to the point where all the income streams of the productive economy can no longer service the debt that has been created. So at that point, you reach an endogenous limit, a limit that's built into your credit expansion. You don't need a trigger for people to suddenly realize that you can't keep a huge pile of promises. The limit is in there anyway. What we've been doing in recent years is to spend more and more money or bring more and more money into existence in the form of credit in order to buy ever smaller increments to GDP very, very expensively. But once we reach the limit, you can't do that. The marginal productivity of debt becomes negative. And then the more debt you take on, actually, the worse you make your situation. And that's where we're standing at the moment. So we can already see the leading indicators for the end of a credit expansion wherever we look. Okay, so what are some of them? Well, what we've seen is, as I wrote the other day, very low market volatility. We've seen the marginal productivity of, of debt go negative, uh, margin debt at record levels, along with the stock market at record levels. That means that people are borrowing record amounts of money to place leveraged bets on the market. This happens every time you, you get the market peaking out with borrowed money at the same time as you see all the evidence of that borrowed money. And that... Those sorts of circumstances are clear red flag warnings that the the bubble is is on the verge of bursting, and we've seen okay. we've seen insider trading as well, uh, people who are in a position to know selling off assets. So th there's a lot around to look. Okay, so in your post in this primer, 40 Ways to Lose Your Future, you have 40 points, each of which uh, is breathtakingly devastating uh, to think about on its own. And I've got a handful that I'd love for you to expand on. So there's, I, I'd like to combine number three and number five. Number three is cash will be king for a long time. Number five is debt will become a millstone around people's necks and bankruptcy will no longer be possible at some point. And you do go on to say what, what some of the consequences of that might be in, in number six. Now, as a person who uh, experienced a bankruptcy after the last bubble of 2008, or maybe that's still this bubble, I don't really know how it works technically, but after the mm -hmm. last crash, uh, I thank my lucky stars for bankruptcy. I can't even imagine going into indentured servitude, servitude or debtor's prison, bringing that back. Can you expand then on why this is so important for us to recognize now and uh, what people with large amounts of debt need to know that they might be facing. Yeah, debt takes you a long way on the way up. You, the ability to borrow money, to, to um, access leverage, allows you to obtain things you wouldn't otherwise be able to obtain, whether it's houses or things bought on credit, cars, anything else it might be that you buy on credit. So it allows you to climb further up the ladder than you otherwise would. But what happens when you reach the peak and you move in the opposite direction is the value of financial assets and the financial value of physical assets falls a very, very long way. What you end up 
with then is a situation where you owe more than you own, often to a very large uh, extent. So in looking at homes, for instance, people end up in negative equity. The mortgage they have on the home is larger than the value of the home. And at the same time, in the, the kind of economic disturbance that we're looking at, unemployment goes through the roof. So people's ability to service, to earn enough to service the mortgage uh, is, is uh, hit very hard. Interest rates typically rise as well. So the burden that that debt represents goes up substantially. So people end up in a, in a financial perfect storm. When when the the uh, the bubble bursts and things the trend moves in the other direction you end up with debt being an enormous burden asset prices falling across the board unemployment going up interest rates going up rates and local taxes going up user fees being imposed for things that were previously free and all of a sudden people simply can't cope anymore they no longer have the ability to service the debt the assets that they own are typically confiscated through foreclosure in in the case of homes but also repossessions and, and various other unfortunate things. So when you're in a position of having a great deal of debt, this is a huge risk factor when you're moving into a period of financial and economic contraction. So I tend to tell people, if at all possible, to get out of debt. Now, accessing bankruptcy is going to be something that, that a lot of people are going to need to do because there is no other way for them to get out of, of the debt that they're in. Now, for some people, simply selling a home, uh, cashing out the equity and paying off the debt uh, may be enough. But for many people, the situation is going to be very difficult to get out of uh, short of, of bankruptcy. Now, when a trickle becomes a flood, access to that option will be closed off. Right now, the legislation exists to allow people to have that fresh start because it's not that larger proportion of people. So it doesn't threaten the system at this point, the level of bankruptcy that we currently see. If that trickle became a flood, it would threaten the system. It would threaten not only the debtors, but also the creditors. And this is what the system is not going to want to allow. So if people are in a situation that it's not going to be retrievable by selling assets, then declaring bankruptcy is a way to get that fresh start. And people say, but that will trash my credit rating. Yes, it will. But you shouldn't at this point be thinking in terms of borrowing money anyway, and it will be a good discipline that you won't be able to. So you will not be able to live beyond your means for the period of uh, until that bankruptcy is discharged. And this is actually going to be a, a very good thing as much as it won't feel like it at the time. I, I, I have to say uh, many people have counseled me to, you know, do what I can to build my credit, uh, you know, while I'm in that seven year period. So I've been discharged, but you know, you have to wait for seven years before it, it is cleared. And I have another mm -hmm. year or something like that. But it has never once crossed my mind that I would ever want to have a credit card again. Like it just it just hasn't. So I, I don't ever think about getting a mortgage or anything like that. It just <laughs> makes absolutely no sense to me. I know exactly what the trauma of uh, the world collapsing and the sands shifting under your feet feels like. Now, in number 16, you say finance rules will be changed at will and changes applied retroactively. So is that one of the things you would consider, you know, a finance rule? Like at some point, uh, uh, institutions or a country, I suppose, would, would say there is no such thing as bankruptcy anymore. And those things, you know, you're just... 
I think we all want to believe that the future is going to be this sort of the same as the present, but a bit shinier and brighter. And that sounds like uh, quite a um, autocratic uh, regime that might do something like that. Uh, but I wonder if you're starting to notice already in uh, you know, Europe or where you are in New Zealand or Australia or Canada, that rules do get changed at will? Or what should we be watching for as an indicator that that's already starting to happen? Well, what's going on in Greece is is quite clear evidence, I think, that um, big capital and the big financial institutions control uh, a lot of the political process. Decisions are being made to favor big capital. They have been for years. They're so blatant about it now because they're so confident that they've consolidated that power that they don't even really bother to conceal it anymore. And there's a revolving door between regulatory institutions and the financial industry. So big finance writes the rules by which they are regulated. They move into government, they write the rules, then they go back, the individuals go back into, into the banking system and exploit the loopholes they just wrote into the law. So there's been a coup, if you like, where finance is uh, controlling the political process. The political process does not function for the benefit of ordinary people. And I think this is becoming increasingly clear over recent years. You know, to some extent, you can know certain trends or you can be quite confident about certain trends. But because most people are not insiders in any way, just to know what's coming up is not necessarily uh, enough to be able to take advantage of it in the way that a lot of people would typically think. So the kind of thing that I mean about uh, making changes is to say, if you, for instance, if you know things are going to decrease, if you know the market is going to go down and you're trying to short things, well, it's entirely possible that they will ban shorting. So even if you know that something is going to go down, you end up not being in a position to benefit uh, personally from, from that knowledge. And things like changes to bankruptcy as well, that's very much uh, on the cards. Uh, changes in access to pension funds, for instance, is another one. So at the moment, people have been able to access, at least limitedly, and not everywhere, but typically been able to access pension funds to some extent in advance if you're prepared to take a tax hit. But the, that is another thing that when a trickle becomes a flood, people will not be allowed to do that anymore. So whatever money you have, have in pension funds will stay stuck in pension funds and you will never see it again. The justification will be something like, well, people seem to be depleting their valuable retirement savings and we can't allow them to do this because it's not in their own interests. What they will really mean is, we don't have your money anymore, but we don't want you to realize that just yet. Right. So, okay. so there are going to be all manner of changes like that that are going to be to the disadvantage of the ordinary people and to very much to the advantage, at least in the short term, of the financial system in its current form. However, no matter how much they do that, it's not actually going to be enough to save the system anyway, because we've already blown the bubble. We are going to experience the consequences. The bubble will implode no matter what anybody has to say about it. So these changes are, are not uh, not and to change uh, my, my view of the way the future is going to play out. And one thing I wanted to add, going back to what you asked me earlier on, is why cash will be king. Well, when you crash the money supply, because the vast majority of it is credit, what you end up with that still functions as money is just the, the currency that's actually in circulation, the real physical currency, because the value of credit instruments has disappeared. So there's not very much of that. There's very little actual physical currency. Most people work with electricity 
electronic currency most of the time. That will almost certainly not be an option at some point in the perhaps not too distant future. So if you have access to actual cash, liquidity, cash on hand, or cash equivalents like uh, highly liquid short-term government bonds, for instance, then you still have money. Hardly anyone will still have money in a deflation. So the people who do have money will find that they are in a, a much more advantageous position, even if it's not a lot of money by today's definition. If you don't have money, you're not going to have any uh, opportunities to do much of anything. But there will be a lot of opportunities available for the few who still have money. Cash will be king for the period of deleveraging. And then we will move into an era when hard goods matter more. And the value of cash then will uh, be uh, debatable. So what about money in the bank? Money in the bank doesn't count. Money in the bank is an unsecured loan that you've made to the banking system, which they may or may not pay, depending on whether they can. Uh, so in Cyprus in March 2013, um, banks uh, closed their doors. And Argentina, 2001. What's going on in Greece at the moment is comparable as well. Uh, capital controls get introduced. So you may or may not ever see what's in your bank account again. If you do, it may not be all of it. You may have to wait months, maybe years to see any of it. And what are you going to do in the meantime? So anything you have in the system, whether it's in the banking system or in a brokerage account, is at risk because you are dependent on the solvency of middlemen. This is a risk that you can do absolutely nothing about. Whereas if you control your own supply of liquidity, then the risks that you're facing, things like fire and flood and theft, are things that you are in a position to manage. So it's not that there are no risks, but it's better to be in a position where you can manage the risks you're taking than to be in a position where you have no control at all. Okay, good to know. <laughs> uh, so number 10 Real estate prices are likely to fall by at least 90% on average. When? <laughs> well, it takes time. So I'm not suggesting for a moment that real estate prices are going to fall by 90% from one day to the next. The value of derivative contracts could do that, depending on which contracts it is and what state people's minds are in. But the value of real assets takes a lot longer to fall. 90% is simply the, the sort of rough average uh, price collapse when a bubble bursts. So that would, would uh, conceal a whole lot of local variation. So some places will probably be worth nothing at all, like, say, uh, large tracts of Detroit, for instance, that are already in that position. Um, Cleveland, pretty similar as well. There have been other instances where real estate's gone down to virtually nothing at all. So not a 90% collapse, but a 99.9% .9 collapse even, perhaps. Other places where it's still possible to earn a living uh, will show relative price support. But it's very hard to tell in advance exactly where those places are. They might be, say, geographically well positioned where you can still engage in what's left of trade, for instance. So some of the major cities, perhaps. But the places that have experienced the largest bubbles are also large, likely to experience extremely large collapses. So I'm thinking places like Auckland, New Zealand, uh, Sydney, Australia, Hong Kong, um, Vancouver, New York City, places like that where there's just been a reach for the sky in terms of property prices. And there's going to be no price support at anywhere near current levels when the supply of credit dries up. 
people think there's a shortage of properties in these places, which is what they would argue drives prices up. It's not a shortage of properties. And for instance, in, in Auckland, it's not that there aren't enough houses. It's that people feel the need to own five of them because they think that's how you win the lottery. You just take a leveraged bet with borrowed money, in other words, on ever-rising ever property values and assume that then you're just going to make a killing. But when the property price goes against you, you're in negative equity almost instantly. All of the, the property portfolio gets foreclosed on. You end up with huge amounts of extra property on the market. So inventory, just crowding everything out. And the combination of a huge overhang of inventory and no access to the credit that you would need to get a mortgage at any realistic rate of interest you know, means that there's going to be no price support for a very, very long way down. It takes time, though. What happens first is the market goes illiquid. So you, you lose the ability to find bargains between buyers and sellers. So sellers will not accept what buyers are prepared to offer. So, so you see a, an increase in for sale signs all over the place as sales simply dry up, becomes a buyer's market. Then buyers are able to put downward pressure on prices in various ways, like maybe uh, forcing owners to do all sorts of uh, repair work. And in the States, when this happened, uh, owners were throwing in a free pickup truck, for instance, to try and get uh, houses uh, moving. Eventually, you get some of the sellers bridging that gap to the downside. So some of the sellers will come down to where the buyers are because for whatever reason they have to sell. At that point, you have price discovery. Price discovery on comparable properties lowers the value of the entire neighborhood because prices are set at the margins. So what you have is a handful of bargains made at lower prices, lowers the value of everybody's property, then the buyers realize that prices are falling and they think, oh, good, we'll wait. So once again, the market goes illiquid and the same dynamic happens again. It happens multiple times as the property market ratchets down over perhaps 10 years, perhaps longer. It can take a long time to wring out all the excess value from the property market. But many, many people will be in negative equity on the way down. People often think that they're, they're protected if they have a large cushion of equity. But in fact, that may not be the case at all. Properties where the percentage of debt is not particularly high, but it still exists, may actually be a more attractive target for calling in loans than properties that are very heavily mortgaged. Because if something is already in negative equity or on the verge of it, there may not be so much reason in foreclosing on it because there's very little to be gained in doing so for, for a financial institution. Whereas if financial institutions can call in good loans then they have the opportunity to cash out that equity themselves. And of course, the ability to call in loans is another aspect of changing the rules retrospectively to favor big finance. So at the moment, you wouldn't expect to see loans called in, but you certainly can see that in the future. It's like getting a margin call on your house. Right. This is incredibly difficult to imagine when, uh, you know, I, I see all around uh astronomical prices. I'm in Victoria, which is, you know, just a, a short boat ride away from Vancouver. So we have a huge bubble here as well. I know it's incredibly difficult for people to hear and believe that this could happen when everything seems to be so happy-go-lucky here. So I'm curious how you personally cope with, you know, maybe feeling like a Cassandra <laughs> Maybe, you know, how do you manage that emotionally when you can see so clearly that the writing's on the wall and people are, 
you know, seem to be oblivious and not heeding the warnings. People never heed warnings at the time when those warnings are most valuable because timely warnings are never credible. If you if you give people a warning at a time that, that actually gives them the opportunity to do something about it, then they're going to listen to the warning, look at what's going on around them typically and say, I don't see any connection between these two things. So what you have to try and find if you're going to try and warn people is you have to be early enough to be useful and late enough to be credible in that people have to have seen enough going on in their lives or around them to have some sense that what you're saying might be true. You know, because there's this tug of war of greed and fear all the time, whether or not people are in that mindset is a very variable thing. They were in that mindset in 2007, 8, and 9. People were, were listening. They could see what was going on. They were prepared to change their behavior, pre prepared to uh, be open to perceiving the risk that was all around them. What happened after 2009 is people progressively went back to sleep again and became extremely complacent again. So once again, we're in a position where warnings of financial meltdown are, are not as credible as, as you would want because people don't accept the argument if, if they're in that state of, of complacency. And human beings tend to only have two operating modes. There's complacency and then there's panic. And what I'm trying to do is to create a kind of useful third space, a kind of informed sense of urgency is the need of, to the need to do something about this. Now, people's openness is, is not just a, a question of, um, of complacency. That's one thing that prevents people being open to, to arguments that they need to do something. The other is when they've already gone over the edge too far into the, in the direction of fear. So what I found in, in Europe past a certain point was people had developed crisis fatigue. They were either so afraid that things were going to collapse right then and there or just so sick and tired of the entire thing that they couldn't cope with the thought that it might get worse before it gets better, that they stopped listening altogether. And so that's a frame of mind where people aren't taking it in either. I find the time that, that you need to talk to people to really get a message across is getting close to the cusp of the trend change where they're looking around for information, they want to know what's going on, they're not trusting the authorities anymore, so they're looking for independent analysis, but they're not yet so afraid they've been paralyzed into inaction. That's one of the things I actually find in this part of the world, in the South Pacific, that, that people are in that frame of mind, whereas in Europe they were more afraid and, and ridden with crisis fatigue. In, in places like Canada, I found it was just too far. Uh, people felt that they were too complacent. They just weren't paying attention. So I couldn't really get through to people there either. What but about it, in it America? Is, in America, I think people, there's a train wreck going on on Main Street in America at the moment. People are in a state of crisis fatigue there too. But the news is written by the winners, if you like. Mm -hmm. It's reflecting the situation of the people at the top. So for them, the last few years have been a spectacular success because it means that they've been able to accumulate far more of everything than they had before. So they regard the last few years as, as being a very good thing and recovery. And we can thank the, the Fed for having saved the world. But for ordinary people, the squeeze has been relentless. They've been losing jobs. They've been getting cut off on employment and all kinds of benefits. 
uh, food stamps are being cut back on. You never hear very much about this. You never hear, for instance, about the fact that the big banks profit enormously from administering the food bank system, even as they squeeze the very, the, rather the food stamp system, even as they squeeze the very life out of it. There are enormous amounts of money flowing to the large banks as the ordinary people are being progressively squeezed. It's not just ordinary people either. It's the local government, it's municipal authorities that are borrowing more money, desperately aware that they're never going to be able to pay this back, but just thinking that there's nothing else they can do. There's going to be a rash of, of municipal bankruptcies coming up in the states. State bankruptcies, we're going to see states on the verge of bankruptcy too. So all of these, these entities that do not have any ability to print money are being, or, or, or benefit from other people printing money, these are the entities that are being relentlessly squeezed, but they don't make the headlines. Not yet, anyway, but they will. So the only reason so there's any mortgage market in the States now is all of it is taxpayer-backed. If it wasn't, the housing price collapse would have continued in the States, and it will continue again when the bubble bursts. Then people are going to be in absolutely desperate straits. They've been hanging on for the last several years just thinking, we'll get through this and we'll turn the corner and it'll all be fine. Well, unfortunately, it won't. We're going to see the move to the downside again. So let's talk. Uh, the last point is point 35 ordinary people are unlikely to be able to afford oil products at all within five years. And you emphasize that at all. So tell me what that looks like. I mean, yeah, ordinary people have just been going paycheck to paycheck, just kind of hanging on, hustling here and there. There's, you know, even as an entrepreneur, uh, everybody in kind of my space of, uh, you know, heart-centered, conscious entrepreneur is talking about multiple streams of income. You know, everybody is uh, kind of on the hustle. So what do you mean that we won't be able to afford oil products at all in five years? Well, it's a complex picture. It's mostly because hardly anyone will have any money. So it won't just be oil products that they won't be able to afford. It'll be much of anything. In a deflation, what happens is prices fall across the board. Even the prices of things like food and fuel and essentials are, are quite likely, at least initially, to fall. But things do not all fall at the same rate. What ends up happening is the things that have no real value, like, say, plasma screen TVs, because you can't eat them and things like that, things like that fall to next to nothing. But the, the essentials, like food and fuel, receive relative price support because a much larger percentage of a much smaller money supply will be chasing them. So when everything falls, the essentials don't fall anywhere near as much as they else. And when people have a lot less money, what that means is the prices of the essentials is going up in real terms. These things are getting less affordable. So the squeeze is on. The other half of that, so that's the financial half of it. The, the physical half of that to do with energy specifically is to do with the scenario that we're facing in the energy industries. There are no good resource plays that are left globally at this point. So what we've seen with the oil price collapse is a combination of finance, uh, falling demand, less money in circulation, but also we've seen the perception of glut in terms of both oil and gas. First in, in gas, now in oil, thanks to the fracking industry, the, the uh, move towards thinking we're going to have a future based on unconventional oil and gas. We're not because the energy profit ratio is extremely low 
for for um, these these kinds of resource plays. The insiders know this perfectly well. The perception of glut is therefore temporary. It exists for the period of time while people still believe that unconventional oil and gas will be a huge bonanza and that we will be swimming in energy. But that perception is already dying. In North America, it's already dying in, in the gas industry. The rig count shifted towards shale oil from shale gas. People, well, The gas industry is, is basically bankrupt. They took on huge amounts of financial risk in order to be able to, to stay in the game. That didn't go well. Now there's going to be a wave of consolidation and bankruptcy in the gas industry. The same dynamic is coming for the oil industry in places like uh, North Dakota over, over the next uh, next little while. That perception of glut will therefore reverse. All of a sudden, we're going to realize that peak oil never went away, that we are actually past the peak of conventional production, and that we're moving into an era of desperately low energy profit ratio energy sources. So but when that realization dawns, we are very likely to see oil prices then actually rise. So as in financial terms, everything may fall. It's likely to fall initially, but it doesn't mean it will continue to fall. If prices then rise in the face of deflation, what that means is they're actually going through the roof in real terms. And I very much expect energy prices to do exactly that. So it will be the combination of people having next to no money and very large price rises in real terms for access to energy. And that will depend on where you are in the world because uh, energy is not evenly distributed. So in places where there's where the energy is physically there and doesn't have to be brought in from somewhere else, then places like that will do uh, much better than places that have huge import dependencies. And of course, the degree of import dependency depends on demand. If demand falls a long way, even if a country is not current, currently producing enough to satisfy its demand. It may do so in the future in an era of lower demand, so they might all write for a while. But other places where there's this huge import dependency, say Japan, for instance, they are going to be in a world of hurt in next to no time at all. In in an era of financial crisis, trade will be very, very difficult. It's not likely to happen in anything like uh, the way it does now. So there are going to be a confluence of factors that make energy products very expensive, and that is going to make it extremely difficult for people who are in ordinary person's type position to be able to access any of these uh, fossil fuel products. So if you happen to live near where there's some trees you can burn, you might be able to keep uh, your home warm, but there are going to be a lot of people who lose the ability to connect with those energy markets that they currently depend on. Mm-hmm. And so this is where we see the uh, uh, not just uh, the in the climate refugees that we hear about, but economic refugees, people who are moving, you know, because of uh more hospitable climate and you know because if you live in a lot of Canada that's a lot of months of very high expense or living very close to the bone Uh, so we see a lot of people moving out west um, as far west as they can go and we experience quite a crunch here which of course puts pressure on the housing market all of that stuff Uh, so I can see how it all gets distributed (laughs) in kind of a long slow uh, protracted death rattle so Okay, number 39, this is the last one I'm going to cite. Repressive (laughs) political structures will arise with much greater use of police state methods and a drastic reduction of freedom. Now, obviously, we've we've, uh, experienced in the media anyway uh, a little bit of what this is like um, with all of, you know, things like... uh, 
WikiLeaks and uh, what's the fella's name who's in Russia now? Oh, Edward Snowden. Snowden, yeah, Snowden, and you know all of these revelatory documents. Um, and in you know Canada, uh, if I mean, this is just the most conservative regime in my lifetime. It's certainly not the Canada I grew up in. Uh, are you noticing this since you travel all over the world? Are you noticing this uh, that the general population is feeling a little more antsy? about uh, the political apparatus these days? They're not yet, more's the pity, they should be. Because there's a lot of legislation being put in place that has significant implications in terms of police state regulation, and people are unaware of it. At the moment, the places where people are concerned, they're basically trading civil liberties in exchange for protection. And as Benjamin Fang said, when you do that, you enjoy neither. So what people are doing is saying, please protect me, please keep me safe from terrorists or bogeymen under the bed, which is basically the same thing. And there's, they're saying, please protect us, put in place this legislation that controls all these things. It's actually asking to be over-regulated. And that's, when you ask for that, you get it. Governments are very happy, typically, to over-regulate people's lives and create enormous problems. You only have to see uh, the huge security apparatus around the TSA in, in the States, for instance. And they're talking about putting CSA or TSA agents on, on trains and buses to let people on, on a train or a bus only after you frisk them for explosives pretty paranoid. So what you get is the end of the open society. The open society is not destroyed by terrorism. It's destroyed internally by response to external threats, mostly fictitious threats in, in this case. It's not that there is no threat at the moment, but the threat is being blown up and grossly disproportionately in order to bring in a police state apparatus. And I see evidence of that in, in many places. Central control does have a role to play in a future of resource constraints where you could bring in systems of rationing, for instance. If there's not enough to go around, if you ration by price, it just means poor people don't get any. If you actually bring in a system of rationing to make sure that nobody's actually starving to death or whatever it may be, then you can you can prevent some of the worst impacts of financial crisis. But at the same time, that will require greater central authority and central authority is a double-edged sword because it can be abused and very likely will be abused by the people who inherit the, the powers granted. So we have to be very careful in terms of granting central control over pretty much anything to go into that sort of thing with our eyes open. When it comes to Canada, one of the things I noticed, and this was several years ago, that was very disturbing to me thinking about the Canada I grew up in, was I was doing a lecture in a library, public library in Montreal. I'd been invited to come and do this. We'd put a notice up on the automatic earth that I was going to be there. This was not long after the G20 protests in Toronto. So the security apparatus was in absolutely full flood paranoia. They tried to tell people who were coming to my lecture that, no, there was nothing organized there. They should just go home. And when that didn't work, when people turned up anyway, uh, they they brought in security guards to babysit us for the evening. So it was ridiculous. They actually had security guards sitting outside of a room just so that 20 people at that time could hear an economics lecture. And this was Canada. 
that I and that's the only place that's ever happened to me in the whole world. So I, the level of paranoia with that was was fascinating to me. At the same time, as it was horrifying. Yeah. Okay. So the last question on the Numinous podcast is so ridiculous now uh, in the context of our conversation <laughs> that I can't ask it <laughs> because <laughs> it comes from the Proust questionnaire. And the last question that I always ask is, what do you consider perfect happiness? And I, ca I can't even think about happiness right now. I can only think about it as some measure of inner peace. So I'm wondering for you, Nicole, what would you consider uh, a measure of inner peace? Just describe a, a, a day or a moment or a scene that gives you some solace in the face of all this? I think what we have to learn to do to a large extent is to live in the now and uh, to not constantly dwell all the time on the future or the past, on what could have been or what might be. Because if you spend your whole life living in the future and the past, for one thing, you have no chance of happiness because you're not even paying attention to the now, but you're also not grounded. And I think people who do that also cut themselves off from other people around them. And what, what does make people happy is not having large amounts of resources. It's having a supportive community around you, knowing that other people have your back and that, that whatever you're going through it together. So it's not just what you're facing. It's who are you facing it with and in what set of circumstances and I don't think that one can, can, you can say that you can't be happy under the circumstances that are coming. I think you very much can. But being happy is about being in that context and enjoying the now. And whatever happens in the future, if you're in that position where you have that level of security, you can face a whole lot of threats and not find that, that it destroys your, your equilibrium and your ability to function. Mm, that is... So, so well said and such a great point. And I have to say that uh, reading The Automatic Earth has been like a lifeline. And it has made, I know for my husband and I both, it's made us feel as though we aren't alone and that we are in this with some people, even though we're far flung across the interwebs, right? <laughs> it's like, okay, who are, you know, who do we want to face this future with? And how do we want to be in the face of it? And so it's, it's nice that he and I have each other, but in the larger umbrella, we've got you. So thank you so much, Nicole. I really appreciate you being on the show and sharing all your expertise today. You are very welcome. Regardless of whatever position you hold on global finance, I don't know if you can debate how passionate and detailed and thorough Nicole is when it comes to talking finance. My goodness, I think I only understand about 30% of what she's saying sometimes, uh, but I intuitively am with her 100%. So I hope you enjoyed that show. If you uh, found it useful, I'd really encourage you to share it with a friend, anybody you think needs to hear it. 
Thank you so much for spending this time with me today. And in particular, I'd like to say hello to all of our listeners in Norway. I see you downloading and I find this absolutely mind-blowing. I hope things are going well with your economy. I have a feeling you're probably just like us in Canada, uh, pretty resource-dependent and potentially uh, should be feeling a little nervous right now. So I hope you enjoyed the show. I'd also like to direct you to my show notes today because there were a lot of things that uh, Nicole was talking about that require much more elucidation. So go to my website, carmenspaniola.com, C-A-R-M-E-N-S-P-A-G-N-O-L-A, and just click the link for the podcast and you'll see the uh, show notes there with the picture of the episode. That's also where you'll find information about becoming a patron. If you like the show, you can let me know with as little as a dollar per episode. Just click the little button that says become a patron. And finally, to ensure you never miss an episode, sign up to receive notifications at the bottom of my site. Until next time, take care.